0: Thank you for, for coming today. Thank you for, for caring about this issue. Um, as, as Duane has, has intimated, this is not an issue that will be remote. I'm guessing for any of us, actually. Uh, when we think about issues of sexuality, we're not thinking of, primarily about culture and society and out there and big trends and all these sorts of things. Virtually all of us will be thinking about people. Uh, I'm guessing all of us will have someone in our close orbit who would self-identify as LGBT+, plus or a same-sex attracted, or, or something of that ilk. And so when we think about this issue, we're, we're thinking of people we know and love very dearly. Maybe someone in our immediate family, it may be a really good friend, it may be a colleague, it may be a neighbour. And for some of us, it may well be ourselves. Maybe this issue strikes even closer to home. This is part of our own story. Uh, That has certainly been the the case for me. Um, Some of you may know the only real romantic and sexual feelings I've experienced have have been for men rather than for women. Um, We can talk more about that a bit later on. It took me a long time to kind of recognize that, to acknowledge that, to come to terms with that. I'm I'm slow, so it took a few years of uh, teenage confusion before I kind of recognized that was what was going on. And I've come to Christ. I believe that God's words on this issue are both clear and good. And I hope that we will grow in our confidence in God's words. I love how Duane set this up, that actually we're not just interested in clarity. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And particularly for those in in the room who are are pastors and, and church leaders, Having the right theology is is good, but it's not enough on its own. Uh, We need to be people of of compassion, of grace, of truth, of kindness. Um, If you've got a a Bible to hand, would you turn with me to just the beginning of Romans uh, chapter 1? I just want to start our time there. What we're going to be doing over the course of the day is, um, in this session I really want us to think about in very broad terms, how culture has got to where it is, and how understanding that will will help us as believers, I think, to better respond to it. Um, After the the, the break, we will then think about what the Scriptures say around issues of sexuality, and then um, this afternoon think about how we as, as church communities can be a blessing. What is it we need to to have in our church culture that will enable people um, who would be sexual minorities to, to come to our church, to flourish in Christ alongside us. Um, there's a, a Q&A panel, but someone else will explain how that works later on, I'm sure. Um, Romans chapter 1, let me just read from verse 8. Uh, Paul begins by saying, <coughs> excuse me, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I love that. Paul's reflex when he hears of another believer, even if it's someone he doesn't know and has never met, he just can't stop but to thank God. It's a lovely impulse, isn't it? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Uh, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under <clears throat> obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You get the feeling from these verses, not just that, that Paul is affectionate towards these Christians in Rome, but there's an, there's an urgency for Paul to, to visit them. He kind of spreads this throughout the passage. He uh, says in verse 10, um, he's been praying that somehow by God's will I might succeed in coming to you. He's, he's been praying about getting to visit them. Uh, verse 11, he longs to visit them because he wants them to be strengthened. There's something in this Christian community that lacks strength. Uh, again, verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware that I've I've tried to come, but I've been prevented. Uh, ships cancelled, or sunk, or flights cancelled, or weather warnings, or Asian flu, or something. Paul has tried. I've, I've even had tickets that I've had, to, I've had to then get refunded. Whatever it is, he's not been able to get there. And you get the sense, Paul is laboring this point because reading between the lines, it seems that the Christians in Rome might well have been thinking, do you know what, Paul's kind of shtick, that works out there in the provinces. But this is Rome. This is the center of the world. This is the heart of, of global culture and thinking and, and sophistication. And and maybe that's why we've not seen Paul. Yeah, his, his stuff is effective out, out there in the in the kind of far-flung regions of the of the empire, out there in the kind of out there in the, the fields of Galilee and places like that and bits of Europe. But this is this is somewhere else. This is a whole other deal. So maybe, maybe Paul's, maybe Paul's not up for this. You get the sense that they themselves are intimidated by their context. This is Rome, what are we gonna say to Rome? What is, what do we have that Rome wants to hear? Rome does not need us. And so Paul labors the point, actually no, I wanna come. I've been praying about coming. I've attempted to come, and I'm eager to come. And why that is, is for, for two reasons. To, to strengthen them so that they can have more confidence in what they, they, they believe. And then in verse 13, he wants to reap a harvest. And so Paul gives us these three I am's. We're used to the I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. Paul gives us three I am's here in Romans 1. Verse 14, I'm under obligation actually. I have a, I have a duty to come. Uh, some translations have I'm, I'm in debt. And there are, there are two ways to be in debt. If you lend me money and I'm due to pay it back, I'm in debt to you but if someone else gives me money to pass on to you, I'm also in debt to you. Paul is under obligation because he has been given a message to pass on to all the Gentiles. He's done a pretty good good job of all the Gentiles except these guys in Rome. So I'm under obligation both to Greeks. Rome prided itself on on the Greek cultural influence It it came under. Paul is saying, no, 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 I owe them the gospel too. Verse 15, so I'm, I'm eager to preach to you in Rome. I'm not nervous, Paul says. And the reason for all of that is, is the famous verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not in Rome, not in Jerusalem, not in Ephesus, not anywhere. Because wherever you are, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Beginning with the Jews, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Friends, I wanted to start there because my... my, sense is that in, in many parts of the Christian world, especially the Bible-believing Christian world, how the Roman Christians felt about Rome is how many of us feel about our gay community and our gay friends. We feel as though, yep, with everyone else, the gospel stands a chance, but with this group, they're just, it's not going to work. They're not going to be interested. They have no need for this. And so I meet so many Christians who, who are up for evangelism, but when it comes to the, the, the gay couple next door or the, the colleague at work or the member of the family, they kind of freeze. I think, oh no, I, I, oh, this, this, is, this is different. And so just as Paul tries to normalize The work of the gospel to people who are Roman so too we need to normalize the work of the gospel among anyone in our community because whoever we're talking to it is still the power of God for salvation it doesn't cease to be that when we change from one demographic to another demographic when it comes to our LGBT plus friends God is not nervous and thinking, ah, yeah, this this is a whole different ball game. So my friends, people are people and the gospel is the gospel. And it is laughably easy for God to save anyone. And if we think a certain demographic is somehow further away from the gospel, less likely to be saved, harder work for God that he's really got to kind of take a protein shake before he works on them. (laughs) What you're really saying is that you were somehow innately closer to God. That it took less of him, you were just more lined up with him than normal people are or someone else is. Which is completely Rubbish. That's an English word, do you, do you say that word? <laughs> it takes no more grace, no more miracle, no extra work of God to save someone, say from the LGBT community, for that matter the, the Muslim community or any other community than it took to save you. So we should be eager to preach the gospel. We should expect a harvest for the gospel. Well, with that said, let's think about the, the context in which we are in. Um, many of us will, will, will know how much has changed in our, our culture over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, this is a, an issue where our, our rage does affect our perception. People talk about the difference between being an immigrant and a native. For the cultural time we are in, many of us in this room are immigrants. Okay, we've, had, we've seen our culture change all around us. We've had to kind of enter into a new and unfamiliar cultural time. But for many of those who are, say, under 30, certainly those who are under 25, this is normal. They're native, this is all they've ever known. And my fear is there is a massive disconnect between the younger generation for whom this is the air they've always breathed and for the people in their churches who are teaching them. So, let's track some of the things that have changed. So, those of us who are are younger might have a sense of, oh, it hasn't always been like this. And those of us who are a bit older may get a sense of, okay, I can kind of see why we're at where we're at. So three things, uh, significant things that have changed that I think have p- explained why people think the way they do today on sexual issues. So the first thing is our moral intuitions have changed. Our moral intuitions have changed. Um, some of you may have come across a, a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He's a, a, not a Christian man, he's a, a moral psychologist. His main contention is that our our moral reactions are driven more by intuition than they are by reason. Whether we think something is morally right or wrong is not because we've we've got some vast, clever system of moral thinking and we've we've done the work and reached a conclusion. It's because we just have a kind of gut feeling. It's intuitive. So he gives one... um, kind of silly example but, but a telling one. He says, if, if a family pet dog dies or goes to be on a farm depending on your, what you, what you say. Um, if, the, if the parents decide we're going to bury the dog in the backyard, maybe put a little tree there, most of us think, yep, yeah, that's, that's not morally questionable. That's, that's It's a good thing. Now, suppose a family pet dog dies. And again, the family thinks, yep, yep, we're going to bury him in the backyard and do a tree and all the rest of it. But before we bury them, we're going to eat them and bury the remains. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Not very comfortable, but the question is why. It just doesn't feel right. It's not that we've, we've come up with a, a system of moral reasoning and we've des- decided that it's just morally wrong because of these 17 reasons. It just seems wrong or uncomfortable to some of us. And that's the point. Our, our moral determinations come more by intuition and reflex and instinct than they do through reasoning. And the thing we need to realize is that the particular intuitions that come to play on us have changed in the last 10 or 15 years. The things that drive those intuitions have changed. So today, the the kind of primary drivers of whether we feel something is right or wrong are, are, are things like this. I've got three of them, three things that shape our moral intuitions. Is it harmful or not? If it's not doing any harm to anyone else, it's kind of hard to say, well, it must be wrong. Does it seem liberating or is it unnecessarily constraining? Is it kind of freeing someone up or is it kind of shutting down options and opportunities for them? Third one, is it, is it fair or is it in some senses discriminatory or appearing a bit unjust. Those are three of the main moral intuitions Height reckons are, are framing the way people approach moral issues today. Let's apply that to the issue of gay marriage. Uh, when it comes to, to gay marriage, I think the vast majority of people in our, our culture at the moment would say, well, it's not harming anyone else. If, that, if the nice gay couple down the street gets married, it's not going to affect you. It's not going to damage you. One of the lines of reasoning, certainly in the UK when we were discussing gay marriage as a, as a kind of country before legislation came in, was you're still going to be married if your gay friends get married too. It's not going to, it's not going to suddenly upset your marriage, so why would you object to it? It's not doing you any harm. But then that second moral intuition, it it seems freeing. How, How can we deny someone the right to love and to express that love in the way they choose? That just seems unnecessarily constraining. And then the third intuition, how can it be fair for all these other people to get married but not for this group of people to get married? And so if those are the the primary drivers of moral intuition, it makes complete sense that people will now instinctively, intuitively feel that gay marriage is right. Those are the primary moral taste buds that are affecting the way we approach these issues. Um, I was watching a, a Program back back in the UK a few months ago. It's one of these TV shows where there's an ethical issue and people argue over it, and that's the show. And that the issue of on this particular program was should, should evangelical Christians support gay marriage? And one of the speakers came on a, a lady who's been campaigning for this, and, and she says, listen, this is. She says, I'm, a, I'm she said I'm a lesbian, and God is love. And what I'm experiencing with my partner is love. So God blesses this and the church should bless it therefore as well. And then to give the more conservative view, a a Christian leader stood up and, and he said, yeah, but the Bible says it's a sin. Now he's right, I think the Bible does say that's a sin. But I think he entirely missed the point of where this audience was at. This is a secular audience. Why do they care what the Bible says? He was appealing to moral intuitions that weren't there. She was appealing to moral intuitions that were there. This just seemed natural and good and liberating and right and fair and just. Whereas he was appealing to a book that the vast majority of people in the room don't believe in. If these are the the primary drivers of people's moral intuitions, we need to understand that. Our thinking and and teaching and, and conversations around this issue is not going to be compelling if we're appealing to intuitions people don't actually share with us. But my experience is most Christians are appealing to completely different intuitions than their secular friends have. So our moral intuitions have changed. Uh, Secondly, our view of minorities has changed. Um, We now look back as as a broader culture on our previous treatment of the LGBT community and feel shame. And to much of that, we as Christians should say amen. Uh, we look at the pain and realize now that the pain caused by homophobia in the past, cultural homophobia, is something we should be ashamed of. Um, so the, the movie that came out two, or three years ago, The Imitation Game, about the, the Second World War codebreaker Alan Turing, um, was a shock to American audiences to realize that it was a Brit who cracked that code and not an American, <laughs> but uh, you, you look at that movie and you, you realise just what a significant thing that was for the Allied effort in the war, and yet this was a man who, because he was, was gay, was arrested, he was chemically castrated, and we look at how we treated someone who actually was a hero, and we rightly feel shame. Uh, We think back to our collective indifference to the AIDS epidemic that ravaged the gay community, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. And again, and rightly, we feel shame. Many of the, the, the changes that have happened in our culture, we can affirm. It is a good thing that as a culture, we now decry homophobia. But because we look back on on past mistreatment of sexual minorities, we now, as a result of that, have this dynamic that you may have come across called intersectionality. We now place particular value on minority status and especially on the status of a minority that has been victimized in some way. And it's called intersectionality because if you are at the intersection of more than one kind of minority and victim status, then your voice should be even more privileged. That's the kind of way the thinking goes today. So if you are, if you are black, female and lesbian, your voice counts more than if you are a white, straight man. And lying at the heart of this is a, is a concern not to harm people of minority status, particularly those who've historically been harmed. Again, that concern for harm we can, we can affirm, but often the way it is expressed is as a reason for censoring certain viewpoints. Um, I was speaking at a uh, secular university campus on the east coast of the states a few months ago. I'd just been invited by one of the Christian campus fellowships to come in and just do some training for them on thinking about sexuality from a Christian viewpoint. That was all it was meant to be, but somehow word got round that that I was coming to the campus and the, the campus LGBT advocacy group emailed the whole campus and said this, I think they called me a bigot is coming to campus, we need to organize protesters. Now, one of the great things about student protesters is they are the only people who are there early. <laughs> Everyone else arrives five minutes after the event begins. They are there a good 30, 40 minutes beforehand. So I had a long time just to spend talking with them and I wanted to. I saw them there with, with the signs and, and all the rest of it and said, listen, I'm, I'm concerned that you're concerned. So if you're, if you're happy to, would you, would you please tell me what your worries are for this event I'm speaking at? And much of it was easy to kind of allay fears. People assumed I was going to be trying to incite hatred or something. I could give them assurance of that. They thought I was going to be encouraging bullying of, of gay people. Um, I could assure them that if that was the case, I would be protesting with them. But one of the things I I realized as we talked more and more was they kept saying, we think your message is going to be harmful. And when we talked about that more and more and I kind of tried to drill down what they meant by that, it became clear that what they meant by harm was just the presence of disagreement. Even disagreement expressed hopefully graciously and in a civil kind of way. The very existence of disagreement was thought to be psychologically damaging to to gay people of faith. Now if that is the case, and it's the way many people think today, it does explain why our culture is becoming more censorious. Because if your message, however nicely you may express it, is psychologically damaging, I don't need to to persuade you, I don't need to understand you, I don't need to engage with you, I don't need to debate you, I just need to silence you. The third thing is our view of sex and marriage has changed. Much of this we are very well aware of, sex has been uh, entirely uncoupled from procreation, it is now primarily a means of recreation and for many people, shouldn't ever have to be more than that. There shouldn't have to be any strings attached to sex. Uh, It is seen as a de facto civil right now to be able to have consequence and responsibility free sex. Which is why, by the way, it doesn't matter how good our our sonogram technology gets when it comes to looking at what goes on in the development of 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 a fetus in the womb. The real issue is, no, no, people have the right to be able to have sex as a recreation without the prospect of children resulting. Our view of marriage has changed because... Marriage effectively now is a flexible romantic contract. When we think of the redefinition of marriage, most of us think about that the laws have recently come in legalizing gay marriage. I think the bigger redefinition came in before that, where somewhere on the line marriage went from being lifelong covenantal and ordered towards procreation, even if it doesn't always result in that, to being now something that is just... It's flexible and based on romantic feelings rather than covenant promises. So for most people today, marriage effectively is a way of saying, we have an amazing relationship and we want that celebrated by our family and friends. We want that relationship and the feelings we have for each other to have the moment in the sun. And I call it a a romantic contract because... For as long as I have these feelings and you have these feelings, we're good. In fact, we're great. But the moment that changes, we have the freedom to back out of this thing. If you continue to make me feel this way, then I'll stick around. But if I feel you're not providing that sense of fulfillment, I'll back off. It's contractual. That's why, by the way, the, 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 the historic vow in the marriage ceremony is not I do but I will. It's not about what you're feeling now, it's about what you're promising for the rest of your life. Um, I get to take weddings from time to time and um, it's a privilege and a joy to do so. But I now have to make a condition, if a couple says to me, will you, will you take our, our wedding? One of the things I'll say to them is, I will, but the condition is you are not writing your own vows. Because in my experience, when people write their own vows, the vows they write will entirely miss the point of the marriage ceremony. They'll, they'll write vows about how they feel. We know how you feel. We don't need 17 verses of bad poetry to know how you feel. <laughs> that is not the purpose of the marriage ceremony. The purpose of the marriage ceremony is to know what you intend. And the reason we're all here is not because we think your romantic relationship is the, the most unique romantic relationship the world has ever known, it's because we, as the wider community, have a stake in the faithfulness of your marriage. And so we're turning up to let you know that the promises you are making today have been heard by us. And we're gonna hold you to account for that and you need us to. Our view of sex and marriage has changed. And so that the cumulative effect of all of these changes is that when it comes to issues of of human sexuality, Bible-believing Christians are not seen as being old-fashioned and quaint. Okay, we used to be, those were the good old days. No, we are now seen as unfair, as unloving, and as dangerous. Unfair because we seem to be The appearance is we treat one set of people one way and a different set of people another way. We, We don't have the same consistency across the board. Unloving because the appearance is that we are shutting people down from being able to be romantically fulfilled. And dangerous because it is harmful for someone not to be romantically fulfilled. It is harmful for someone not to feel affirmed. So the, um, the gay rights activist and, and social commentator Dan Savage uh, wrote several years ago that, that evangelical Christians are causing young gay people to commit suicide. The culture around us, we look at those statistics that we were hearing earlier, And we'll say, actually, a significant amount of the blame for those increased rates of mental health and attempted suicide and actual suicide, a significant amount of the blame is with the church. Because you're not affirming these guys. Now, if you're anything like me, at this stage, you're feeling a little bit depressed. You're welcome. (laughs) But we need to know where our culture is at and and how it's got to where it's at. We're not going to engage in this issue with any kind of effectiveness or, or traction if we can't think ourselves and feel ourselves into the mindset many of our secular friends have. We need to get to the point where we can say, do you know what, Yeah, I can totally get why people are feeling this way. If we get that, if we're able to empathize with where people are at, actually we stand a chance of being able to effectively engage. But if we just think, no, no, the culture is just nuts and crazy, it just means we're not listening attentively enough to it. And if we just think the world's gone mad, we're not going to be able to speak truth effectively. We'll just be lobbing grenades from our side of the fence. So if that is the case, how should we respond? And I want to share a couple of things now and we'll pick up some of these things after the break as well. If that is the the case with the world around us today, it means a few things. When I encounter this issue now among secular people, I have some particular and modest aims. My first aim is that I want to remove at least one misconception people have of Christians when it comes to this issue. If I'm talking to someone at an event or meeting someone on a plane or if a colleague at work was to come up, this is what I would be thinking is, actually, my first goal is that I would just love them to think we're not quite as awful as they think we are. Um, one of the the positives of people having such a low view of conservative Christians is that it should be easy to pleasantly surprise them. (laughs) Okay, if we fail to do that, we really are in trouble. People think we hate them. I was up at McGill around this time last year, talking to some students on campus there, got to to hang out with some of the LGBT campus group there, and it became apparent to me very quickly that what I had initially heard from some of them as anger was actually fear. And as I listened to some of the individuals, it became clear that they were fearful of me because they thought I was against them, that I was the enemy, that I hated them. I don't think I've ever intimidated anyone in my life, but I met a group of students who were frightened of me, and it broke my heart but people assume we hate them. And therefore, friends, our, our first goal is not, I'm gonna hit them over the head with First Corinthians 6 and with whatever else it might be. Our first goal is to reassure people that we're for them, that we care about them. We don't regard them as the enemy. They don't need to regard us as their enemy. That they have nothing to fear from us. I need to mention that because for very understandable and, and often very good reasons, our, our instinct, if we're Bible-believing Christians, is we have a high theology of sharing the word. That's a good thing. Faith comes by hearing. We, we want to sow the, the seed of God's word far and wide But sometimes it can make us too quick to speak and too slow to listen and so we come into an encounter and our instincts are all, right what am I going to say, what am I going to say, what am I going to say, rather than who is speaking to me, where are they at, who are they, where have they come from, how are they seeing the world, how are they seeing me? Some of you may have come across Rosaria Butterfield. She is someone who came to to faith from the background of being a practicing lesbian. She was a professor of of English and of queer studies at Syracuse University down in in New York State. And she was setting out to, to do a big project on the Bible. As far as she was concerned as a lesbian, the Bible was responsible for all the hate that the gay community were receiving. And so she wanted to take it down which meant she wanted to read it and understand it to be able to to argue against it. And so she came across a a Christian couple, a a local pastor and his wife, and she thought, I'll get to know them. They can be my unpaid research assistants for this. So they had her around to their house. And Rosaria's testimony is that there were two things that couple didn't do that made her gradually feel like they might be safe people to have as friends in her life. The first thing they didn't do was they didn't share the gospel with her. And then the second thing they didn't do was they didn't invite her to church. They broke every rule that we're told in evangelism. (laughs) Share the gospel with someone, invite them to church. Because they didn't do that, Rosaria actually stuck around in their lives long enough over time to find out what they believed and in time to share what they believed. But this couple sensed from Rosaria that if they went straight in with, let me tell you what we believe and, and come to church and all the rest of it, they sensed rightly that she would have felt like a project to them and not a person. Uh, one of the pastor's elders said to him, why did it take you two years to invite this lady to church? And he said, because she wasn't ready yet, and nor was the church. So that means we need to recover the, the lost art, and I fear it is a lost art, even sometimes especially within the Christian community, the lost art of listening. Listening. Let me share a couple of proverbs to you that I think may be the most underutilized verses on pastoral ministry that that there are in the Bible. Proverbs 18 verse 13. This is wisdom from God. He says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That's the opposite of the way we often often think, isn't it? We think, well, I've said my bit, I've spoken the truth, I've done my job, I've been faithful. We may have been foolish and shameful. If we've not properly heard who the other person is. Um, I sometimes, I'm not a very cultured person as you will realize as the day goes on, I, I sometimes call it vomiting the gospel. There's a, there's a, sometimes there are times when we feel like we've got, we haven't done any evangelism for a while, we, we need to do some evangelism, I've got to share the gospel with someone, I'll, someone's going to tell me off if I don't. Some poor, hapless, non-Christian blunders into our, our pathway. And we think, I've got to share the gospel with them. And so, irrespective of where the conversation was actually going, we we find some way to crunch the gears into making it a gospel opportunity. The person says, oh, it's raining a lot today, and we think, rain? (laughs) The only rain here is the rain of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let me tell you about him. (laughs) And we vomit the gospel over them. And I call it vomiting the gospel because afterwards we feel better that it's out of our system. We go home thinking, I've got a great answer to prayer for the small group this week. They're stood there thinking, what the heck is this stuff that's just been shoved all over me? If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 20 verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. There is a depth to the human heart that means that what we see on first contact is often just a slither of of what is actually going on. So often there's something behind what is being said. Uh, My boss, Ravi Zacharias, so often says to us, don't answer the question, answer the questioner. Because sometimes behind the question there's a much, much deeper issue, and that's the real issue. Um, In the Gospel account, someone has has added this up, I don't have the, the, the patience to do this, but apparently Jesus asks 294 questions in the Gospels. Now, I'm willing to suggest that's not because Jesus didn't know things. But by asking questions, often what Jesus was doing was drawing that person's worldview out into the open so that they could see it. Because we don't always know what's in our hearts either. We need to ask questions even more because we don't know what is going on behind the scenes. Jesus does. And so when it comes to issues like this, it's important that we're, if people are comfortable sharing, that we're, we're asking the right kind of gentle questions. So when someone says to me, what do you think about gay marriage? Actually, my first response is to say, well, if you've got a few minutes, actually, I'd just love to hear what you think. And I'd love to share with you what I think but as I get to hear what they think I'll, I'll catch something of a journey, a journey that is then going to shape the best way for me to respond. It may be that that person has is, is felt bruised and battered over the years and so what they need to hear first and foremost is we have a savior who will not bru- break a bruised reed. We have a savior we can trust our bruises to isn't that wonderful? Or I may sense from their journey that there's a there's a level of, of arrogance or or something else that means my, my first way into the gospel then will will be a different tack. So we do need to learn how to listen. The Bible is full of commands to be slow to speak and to be quick to listen. We will have better words to say once we have listened. And we want to show people that we're not just interested in what we think, we are actually interested in what other people think. We're not just speakers if we're we're believers, we're we're listeners. And the other good thing about doing that is it, it can build relationship. Uh, someone came up to me after a, a talk I gave once and said, well, I'm, I've been a lesbian for the last 10 or 15 years. And I said, listen, if you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to hear a bit about your story. And so she, she told me. We, we spent a good long time as she walked me through where, where she'd come from, the ups and downs along the way. Every person that we meet is is an image bearer of God whose story is worthy of our attention. Because of the the high emotional temperature around these issues, we just need to take such a very great care. (laughs) to be tender and gentle with people around us. It's The onus is on us to do that. Other people may be confrontational to us. That gives us no excuse for being combative in the way that we respond. I'm gonna close there because we can, plenty more for us to think about after the break, but let me just uh, pray for us. And I think someone's going to come up and tell us things about caffeine, probably. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. We, we praise you that that's true, that it's been true in our own lives that you had the power to save us. We thank you for the many other people we will know in whose life the gospel has been that very same power to save. Father, we believe the gospel is the power to save anyone. So please help us to be unashamed of it. Please help us to be wise stewards of it. Yes, to be fearless, but also to be very careful. Uh, Father, please help us to approach friends of ours who may be part of the LGBT community with, with love and with care. We pray that we would be those who have a genuine interest in others, people who are good listeners, that we would have wisdom to know what to say and when to say it that we would carry the very fragrance of Christ in our demeanor and in our posture. Father, we can feel intimidated by the cultural moment that we're in, but we know that you're not. And so just as Paul was expectant of a harvest, help us to be expectant of a harvest too.